scripture reading will be taken from Psalms 131, 1 through 3. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your heart in the, uh, hope, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This is God's word. You may be seated. We want to say hello to everyone who is streaming with us right now. We're glad that you're a part of our assembly. I pray that you're blessed by being uh, with us in worship, even though uh, the, the distance is uh, uh, the internet. Uh, we're, we're, we're grateful that you have chosen to be a part of our assembly this morning. We're going to be looking at Psalm 131. There is an outline sheet inside of the announcement sheet where you can follow along, make some notes maybe to follow up on later in the week. My, uh, my encouragement to you this week is that these three verses, which uh, I know many of us have probably never heard a sermon on or maybe have not even, but we don't remember even having read these words, but that this psalm is so precious that you would spend some time uh, memorizing it this week. And if you're like me and you, you wake up in the morning and you recite psalms or before you go to bed as you're laying in bed at night, this is, is a great psalm to lie in bed in the, in the dark and to, to meditate and to repeat the words of this psalm before we go to sleep at night. And what we're going to do is, is jump into it in just a minute, but as we always do, we're going to ask God to bless us in our study. And let's bow our heads and join our hearts one more time. <clears throat> Holy Father, it is from you that we receive our life and well-being in the best of times and in the worst of times. And here this morning we are before you in this great congregation to worship you in all of your glory, to learn how to bear witness to you in this city, in our neighborhoods, at, at our schools, and in our work. And so in this moment we listen. In this moment, we listen. We yield our hearts and our minds to you. And we open our eyes and open our ears to you. For we seek the contentment that you give. Bless us in Christ, we pray. Amen and amen. My voice would be better if I did not sing, but I refuse not to sing when, when we have the opportunity to, especially when we come together as a church. So uh, I guess the burden is on you to deal with this. Sorry. <laughs> we're, we're looking at the songs of ascent, this, uh, the psalms this summer, but again this morning we're going to look at a song of ascent. Those are the psalms that we find from 120 to 134. And the songs of ascent, as best we know, as best we can tell, are the psalms that were sung in the Hebrew community as they were making their way to, to Jerusalem for those great festivals that God had asked them, commanded them in the Old Testament to come and to be a part of in Jerusalem. And they're called the songs of ascent. 
Because as they sang them, they were ascending, literally going up the mountain, going up in elevation, Mount Zion to Jerusalem. But they also were metaphorically a a song of ascent because they were reminders that all of life, all of life was to be lived upwardly, ascendingly to God. And the songs of ascent teach us a lot about what the life of faith looks like. And by the very nature of their being in the Psalter, they teach us a very important lesson, and that lesson is this up on the screen. Our life of faith needs continuous maintenance. Our life of faith needs continuous maintenance. The Bible addresses time and time again the problems of of perhaps falling back in our faith or even a disastrous falling away. The, the, the Bible speaks, too, about, about remaining a spiritual infant and not growing up in our faith or not bearing fruit in our faith as a mature person or a mature plant. There's the imagery of pruning all over the Bible in terms of helping us to grow up and to maintain a very vibrant and a very strong faith. The Psalms remind us that faith needs attending to. There is a lot of wisdom in this quote from G.K. Chesterton out of the book Orthodoxy. He says, to leave, if you leave a thing alone, you leave it to a torrent of change. How true that is. It's a basic rule of life. A house that is not serviced and maintained at some point is going to implode. A car that is not properly maintained is going to break down. A relationship that's taken for granted. A relationship in which we're nonchalant or we're flippant with that other person is a relationship that at some point is going to break up. The same thing is true in the life of faith. And some of the things that we've seen this summer in the Psalms are these. Uh, Not all, but some. Psalm 42 reminds us that there are going to be these times in which because we live in a fallen world and because we, we have a fallen heart, there are going to be times when we're going to enter into what we might call spiritual dryness, when it seems that God is far away. And Psalm 42 says, don't panic when that happens. And Psalm 32 taught us about the liberating experience of confession, of being vulnerable and completely open before God And the the experience, the blessed experience of receiving forgiveness. The very first psalm, Psalm 1, reminds us that God offers to us the reality, if we're willing to believe it, if we're willing to do it, if we're willing to follow Him, if we're willing to have faith in His Word, that a life of blessedness is possible, regardless of the kinds of things that are going on in our life. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon. We sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. Psalm 137 reminds us that there is a way to deal with disappointment. That we live in in a world in which there are mountaintops and there are valleys. There's, There's exultation and there's lament and disappointment and there's tragedy. And how to live a life when it seems like we're surrounded by evil. Psalm 15 reminded us that on a daily basis, we should be praying that our highest desire in this life 
is to pray that, that we live in, that we dwell in the presence of God, that we live on his holy mountain. That's the desire above all the other desires in this life. And this morning we come to Psalm 131, which is a faith maintenance psalm in the area of contentment. And in it we see at least three things. At the core, number one, the life of faith is an experience of contentment. And then secondly, the path to contentment is a path that calls for humbleness, of being humble in every area of our life. And then number three, the source of the contentment is our focus of hope. Let's start off. Point one, the contentment that is above all contentments. The Bible talks a lot about contentment and the experience of contentment is one of the ways that you know that you are on the right trajectory, spiritually speaking, in the presence of God. Paul, writing to Timothy, who is this young minister in Ephesus, says that godliness with contentment is great gain. Over in the Old Testament, Solomon, who knew a lot about discontent as well as contentment, says in chapter, chapter 19 that the fear of the Lord leads to life, then one rests content, untouched by trouble. Here's the question. What is the biblical idea of contentment? Well, there are all kinds of ideas that are thrown out at us in our culture and around the world, and some of these are not bad definitions, but they're all going to be lower-level experiences of that contentment than the way that the Bible describes it. One of these is what we would call a compromised contentment. It's a contentment in which we've kind of compromised what it is we believe to be reality. It's adjusting our expectations in resignation to a less-than-perfect reality. Let me give you a really lame example. On certain days, I would come home from school, bust through that front door, and be confronted by the smell of liver and onions frying on the stove. My mother is here this morning, and she's trying to crawl under a pew. My brothers and I, and it's not her fault, she loves liver and onions. My brothers and I, though, on the other hand, we loathed it. We loathed liver. We were saddened to think that this was a lost meal that we would never, ever, ever get back. <laughs> and mom and dad <laughs> were not all that patient with our reluctance and would remind us that we should be thankful because there were children all over the world starving. Have you ever heard that one? And that was no laughing, joking matter to my brothers and me. We were ready to ship that liver and onions to those in desperate need. So help me God. <laughs> But this kind of contentment is a very weak experience of contentment because a better version comes later in life when you become an adult and you never have to eat liver again. Contentment in the Bible is never a settling for things that are less than they ought to be. So that's one, compromised com uh, com contentment. A second is circumstantial contentment. This is the sense of satisfaction in life that is rooted in certain external elements getting just right in your life. It may be, you know, the spouse and 2.8 kids and the car and the, and the, the house with the two-car garage. Or it might be that finally I can be content in life because I have the perfect career. Or I live in the perfect place. Or I'm content 
because I've had a good week. Or I'm content because things seem to be going pretty well. Now, there's, there's nothing wrong with feeling good when the circumstances are good. The problem is circumstantial contentment does not last. Circumstances can change on a dime. Circumstances can change unexpectedly. Circumstances can change drastically and tragically. We all know this to be true. Paul who knew the ups and downs as well as anybody in this room, would write to the church in Philippi. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be what, church? Content, whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. What is his answer? I can do all things through what? Him who gives me strength. What Paul is saying is that there is an experience of contentment that trumps all of the compromises and all the circumstances that we encounter in life. It is an experience when you have plenty. It's an an experience when you are in need. And the reason that you can have that in either of those situations is because it is tied to a person. Paul says, I can do all things through him. And this is David. David has been through the ups and the downs. We talked last week about the two stories that are known best about David, Goliath and Bathsheba. National hero. National tragic figure. But David, in the midst of all of those ups and downs, says... But I have calmed and quieted myself. I'm calm and quiet on the inside. I am like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child. I am content. David says that contentment is more than just being in the presence of God, as great as that is. It is being calm and quiet on the inside in the presence of God. And he gives us a picture of what that looks like. It's sort of an earthy kind of image, but he says, think of a weaned child. That's what I'm like. This unweaned child is a restless child. It's a noisy child. An unweaned child has learned that the noise and the rooting around and all of the anxiety eventually leads to the gratification of desire. Whereas a weaned child has learned that there is more to the mother than meeting of needs, that she's more than just a need meter. A weaned child finds pleasure in the presence of the mom. There's a contentment on the lap. There's a contentment seated next to her quietly. And what David is saying is, my sense of contentment is in the pleasure of, of being in God's presence, not for what he gives me, but it's a pleasure of being in God's presence for the sake of God. My Father, my Maker, my Shepherd, my Sustainer, the one who loves my very soul. The question now is, how did he get there? And this, he is, he is quite revealing to us. He, he gives a humble review of his life. 
And that's what we do, a humble review of our life. Verse 1, my heart, he says, is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. And this, friends, is where Psalm 131 becomes this faith maintenance psalm. David, in verse 1, reviews his life before God. He's bringing all of the dimensions. He's bringing all of the spheres of life before God in order to reorient his life, to recenter his life in the presence and the goodness and the blessing of God. And notice how he does this. He starts with his heart. The human heart in the Bible is at the center of who you are. Proverbs chapter 4, above all else, guard your what? Heart. For everything you do flows from it. What is at the center of our lives is a very, very, very powerful thing. And the biblical picture of the, of, of the human heart is that it is fallen. Is that it's given to its own devices. At the center of the fallen human heart is pride. It is a heart that opposes the will of God because it insists on crafting out a life for itself. It insists on creating its own life in its own way. And because that is so, it is not a quiet life. It is an anxious life. It is not calm. It is not quiet. It is restless. First line out of Augustine's book, Confessions. Having come out of this time of his life when he was licking the earth as sensually as any man had ever known it, and then becoming a Christian, writes these words. He says, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. And so David says to God, my heart is not proud, Lord. What David is choosing is humility before God to identify what is at the heart of his life. The question for us this morning is this. Is this a target virtue in our own life? Is humility before God and before other people, is that a target virtue in our life? Is that something that we are actively pursuing in the way that we are growing in the likeness of Jesus? If it isn't something that we are stopping and asking God's help for in becoming it's probably not something that we're pressing our mind into very much. But humbleness in heart, in God's presence, is key. And David chooses humility before God to identify what is at the center of his heart. And then secondly, he begins to talk about his people. He says, my eyes are not haughty. Which means that you know, haughty eyes are the ones that look down on others. It's, it's, it's being very prideful and not humble in relationship with others. Why not? It's because we're not getting our identity from God and we are using others. We're getting that identity from others, usually by trying to raise ourselves smugly above them. And so we look at them with haughty eyes. It's hard to say you're humble if you can't be humble with others. Sort of the same thing that, that John talks about when it comes to love. He says, how can you say that you love God whom you don't see? 
when you can't even love your brother that you do see. It's the same with humility. We can talk a good fight. Oh, I'm humble before God. But how is it that we're not humble with other people? And then the last thing he says, it has to do with his will. He says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. David does not allow his ambition to become unruly. He is, he is reining it in because of his vision of who God is. David recognizes that there are some things that are so great, they are so wonderful, that only those things belong to God. But David, in the finitude of his mind, realizes that there are things that are of God and not of David. And that the path to contentment in the presence of God is a path of humbleness. Before God, before others, in his volition and his will and in his heart. And then the final thing he says is that there is a hope that never fails. It's a hope that never fails. David ends the psalm with these words, verse 3, Put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. You know, one of the things that we talk about when we're doing premarital counseling is, is talking about how intimacy is established. And a lot of times, intimacy is, uh, is a euphemism for the, the, the sexual relationship. And there was a way a long time ago, uh, hopefully it's no longer mentioned or taught this way, is that, you know, you would have uh, somebody, an older man perhaps to a younger man say, you, you know, if there's a certain kind of thing you want to happen later at night, you need to make sure that you start being nice to your wife early in the morning. And you do all of these nice things, and then, you know, she, you know. <laughs> and I thought to myself, how manipulative is that? If you know she likes them, how come you're not doing them all the time? If she likes it and it speaks to her heart, why aren't you doing it all the time? Instead of manipulating her for your own end, why don't you love her like that all the time? In other words, intimacy is, should never be linear but circular. That you, as a husband, should be taking care of the needs of your wife in such a way that she is more ready to meet your needs who, because your needs are met or more. And what you begin to do is create a world that is intimate and loving and blessed and servant-oriented rather than trying to manipulate to some end. Now what David is telling us is basically the same thing in this psalm when it comes to humility. You put your hope in God. There is only one thing that is worthy for the center of man's heart, woman's heart, and that's God. And as you enter into God's presence, what happens? I mean, when you see God truly for who he is in all of his glory, then you are humbled because I don't know about you, but I have not created something out of nothing lately. I haven't made the sun stand still. I haven't parted waters. I haven't made myself known in such a way that mountains tremble and people are fearful to even touch the mountain or come near. But that is the kind of God who loves us. Loves us to a great extent. And the closer we are with Him, the more humble we get. And the more humble we get, the more easily we enter into the presence of God because we're not fighting Him. 
We're not restless. We're not trying to craft our own life. We're not trying to create our own way, but in humility, giving it all to Him. And the more that we're in His presence, the more humble we get because we find our satisfaction in Him. That's how it works. And so David says, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. In David's mind, there is only one thing worthy to be at the center of the human heart, and that is God. And it's the humility that opens the door of a fallen heart to allow God to come in. But you know, David had this greater son. David had this greater son who came many centuries in the future. And in that famous passage in Philippians chapter 2, those first 10 verses, we find the echo of this psalm. There was one who was not proud in his heart, but being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped onto, to be clung to, whose eyes were not haughty, looking down on others, but gave us a mindset that in humility to value others above ourselves, who made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. And when it came to his own will, in light of God's will, he said, your will first. My will second. And he humbled himself. And he became obedient in his will unto death. If that's what God's willed, even death on a cross. He humbled himself in order to save you and to radically transform who you are, who I am, in Him on this earth. The question is, will we humble ourselves enough to accept and to trust and to believe that that life can be ours in the presence of God? We're going to have a couple of shepherds down here at the front. If there's a way that we can minister to you this morning, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds about the things that are on your heart. And for the rest of us, let's all stand and let's praise with all of our heart this God who humbled himself for us. Let's stand and let's sing. Created me a clean heart, oh, 